He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. Tell me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. It was never going to be easy, was it? I think we can all agree on that. The agenda that Donald Trump and his administration represent now, the agenda that Trump promised on the campaign trail, this wasn't going to just fall into place. I think we all know that. And we're beginning to see that not only do you have a an opposition that is multi-pronged with the media on an all-out war footing, scorched earth, as nuclear as the media can go against this administration. That's where they've, that's where they've been ever since the election happened, and before then, too. So you've got the media arrayed all in against Trump. You have some parts, at least, of the judiciary, some very important ones. President Obama, with Harry Reid, of course, quarterbacking this in the Senate, got some of the most progressive left-wing judges you can imagine confirmed to the federal bench. Not the Supreme Court, but federal bench is uh, appeals court, very important. And that'll be one of the longest-lasting legacies of the Obama administration. There will, there will be decades past when you'll say, how did a judge come up with such a terrible ruling? Oh, it's one of those judges that Obama packed the federal courts with when Harry Reid exercised the Senate nuclear option of a straight up or down vote on judges below the level of a Supreme Court nominee. So the judiciary is in part arrayed against the Trump administration. Very important uh, district courts have already shown their hand. We'll talk a bit about some of them and the executive order travel ban that's coming up here, too. And where that's being opposed, as I knew it would be, as I said it would be on this show. And in fact, the court out in Hawaii that has already raised a challenge, has challenged it on exactly the grounds that I said it would, being that it is anti-Muslim, it is bigoted. That's what they say, even though that's not what the law says. That's what they think is behind the law. But we'll get there. We'll get into that. But you've got the media, the judiciary, anti-Trump. Then you add into that some very important parts of the bureaucracy and at least some intelligence officers, perhaps law enforcement officers, people within the DOJ, a very small contingent, I would guess, at least a very small contingent that have taken an active hand against the Trump administration, but they're certainly there. And you don't need a lot of people with access to government secrets and classified to cause problems for an administration when all they're seeking to do is embarrass politically the Trump administration. So you have a number of different places where resistance is to be expected. And we're and they're already running up against it. That's clear. You know this, right? We're just going over. We're setting the table here. We're, we're surveying the battlefield together. But here's perhaps what wasn't expected beforehand. The GOP. How many weeks has it been now? Not very many into this administration. And the first major legislative mission that they are embarking upon here is the repeal and replace effort for Obamacare. 
And there is there is dissent from within the ranks. That much is clear at this point. The GOP House bill that's gone forward is, or that's been put forward, and you could have uh, you can read it if you want. It's 123 pages of a lot of subsection seven, subclause 17. We would like to replace with clause C and section D of. It's like whoa. Okay, it's not exactly fun reading. You're not uh, you're not in the midst of the the Game of Thrones novels or whatever. It's pretty boring stuff. But it's the first that we've seen from this GOP that has control of the House, the Senate, and of course they've got a president that wants to push all this through. The first we've seen of what their plans look like, and now we have to face up to reality a little bit. We being everybody who's been waiting for eight years at a chance to set things right. And I have to say, that's where you're going to see the most improvement. I do believe very strongly that the GOP House, the GOP Senate, will be able to undo much of the damage that was done. Certainly not all of it, but much of the damage that was done. We'll see this with regulations. We'll talk more about that later on in the show. Uh, We will see this on immigration policy, although they're running up against a lot of headwinds on that already. And hopefully we will see that in the tax code as well, though that is going to become quite a fight, I believe, too. Um, But we've known for a while that there would be hurdles, there would be obstacles, and now we're running up into them. And you need to have, as much as possible, a united front on the GOP side if they're going to face off against all of them. I haven't even mentioned the Democrats in the Senate, the House, and various other elected bodies across the country. I haven't even mentioned them. They're going to do everything that they can, not just to oppose the agenda, but to lock up some Trump officials if they have their way. But we have this first outing of the health care bill, and it is not strong. Uh, It is very problematic. But what we have to face up to now is something that a lot of us, I believe, have been waiting for. It is, in a sense, a day of reckoning, although it's going to be many days of reckoning, And that is that the GOP, sure, we can undo some of the bad things that Obama did and the Democrat-controlled, well, at one point, House and Senate, but then Democrat-controlled Senate uh, for much of Obama's presidency. We can undo some of that, a lot of it. Well, we'll see how much. But we run into a fundamental problem of politics here, and this is what the health care debate within the GOP has exposed. And you will also see this exposed in the context of, of the fight over tax cuts. That's a little bit more down the line, although a big part of repeal and replace, as we have already seen, has to do with getting rid of tax increases, many of which fell on middle class. Certainly others fell on just the medical industry overall, the infamous medical device tax. But the tax is used to try and prop up this failing law, and it is failing. There's no question. The ACA, Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, is failing. But while people are pushing back so hard on some aspects of this bill, saying it's not conservative, which is true, a lot of it is not conservative, it's not free market, it keeps in place many of the mechanisms of Obamacare, and it also insists on continuing to dispense what I call the goodies, the giveaways, the freebies. And this is what the GOP is going to have to maneuver around and confront in different stages of this whole process legislatively that 
they have made promises as to what they can give people and what they can do for them on the health care front, on the taxation front. And the Democrats stand over on the side just saying, well, we'll give you more. Whatever they're giving, we'll give more. You know, the, the Democrat Party is Santa Claus in this discussion. They're, they're just free stuff. And the Republicans have been saying, no, no. Or actually, a, a better analogy would be the Democrats are, are Robin Hood because they're always pretending to take from the rich and give to the poor. But in reality, as we see with Obamacare, they're taking from the middle class. That's where the, quote, revenue, i.e. taxes, i.e. taking money from all of you, that's where the real good stuff is, the middle class. That's where the taxes have real meaning. I'm sure you've probably seen some of the charts or read about it or just in passing someone's mentioned that you could take all of the money, all of the money earned, not even a percentage of it, by the 0.001% in this country or the 0.01% and it wouldn't do anything meaningful to address our debt, which stands at around $19.5 trillion. And that looms over this entire discussion. And finally, now we're seeing some Republicans who are pointing to this and understanding what's at issue here. Because the Democrats just promise free stuff and the debt doesn't matter and they're just going to do a better job of giving out these freebies. Republicans are realizing to compete with them politically, if they don't want to get annihilated in the midterms, they are, and this is from their perspective, I'm not saying this is the only way, but they're going to have to give some goodies out. They're going to have to keep some of the freebies from the federal government flowing. This is why you have GOP senators who don't want their Medicaid cut down, even though this is supposed to restructure in this bill. And I know people say, Buck, there's future iterations of this bill that will come out and there'll be amendments and changes. And, and sure, that's all true. But they've had years to figure this out. We shouldn't be at the let's throw this bill at the wall and see if it sticks phase. We should be at the implementation, execution, passage signage into law we should be at that phase of the game and maybe we will be in a matter of months but in the meantime as we look at this we see that the political realities of this country aren't necessarily what the republican party up to this point has been leading us all to believe they are what i mean by this is that if they're going to try to maintain power they feel like they have to keep some of the goodies, some of the freebies going. They're going to compete with Democrats on that level. And just now they're starting to ask these questions, though. And this is where part of the fight you're seeing within Republican ranks, this is where part of that fight comes from. You're almost $20 trillion in debt. Sure, it's better to just do what you want to do and not worry about the impact on the debt, especially when you're talking about, well, well in 10 years this is unsustainable. Well, the people that are voting on all this stuff, they're worried about two years. They're worried about the midterms. They're worried about maybe four years or six years, but they're not looking 10 years down the line. And it ha it is a political liability for them, I believe, some of them, to do the thing that they've been saying they do all along, which, of course, is to tackle the almost $20 trillion in debt that we have to balance out the budget. If they're going to do these tax cuts, which are just now being talked about, remember, it's Obamacare first, then tax cuts. That's what they've said. But much of the best stuff we've seen so far from the House GOP bill is 
reduction of tax, uh, reduction of taxation, removal of taxes put in by Obamacare. But you've got the Wall Street Journal and others that are asking some questions here, as well as people like Rand Paul and, and members from within the House and the Senate. Well, are, are we going to pay for this? To pay for tax cuts? Now, isn't that a fascinating construct in and of itself, to pay for tax cuts? Tax cuts are meaning the government's taking less of your stuff, less of my stuff. Paying for tax cuts is a strange way to look at it unless we've already conceded that there's going to be a lot of spending that's got to happen, and we're not going to touch any of that. And if we're going to stay within some parameters of solvency, we can't spend ourselves into oblivion even faster. But the reason they talk about it in this way of paying for tax cuts, which is so weird, we pay the government. What do you mean? It's going to pay for tax cuts? That doesn't make any sense. That's why they also use words like revenue when they mean taxation. and They're playing games here. To pay for tax cuts is a suggestion that the government makes to itself, when in reality, that's because they don't want to turn to us and say, well, you know, the problem here is that 70% of government spending is on autopilot. The reality is that the entitlement state is set to massively uh, financially oppress and limit and constrain future generations, if not have a, a real economic reset or an economic collapse of some sort, which sounds gloom and doom and crazy until you ask all of the people that were around in D.C. in 2008, and they say, well, we just avoided catastrophe very narrowly because of all the wonderful work they did in government. Meanwhile, the crisis was actually largely a product of government intervention in the housing market, and part of that was driven by a desire for social justice, but that's a whole other conversation perhaps for another show. So do they go forward with the Obamacare tax cuts, the tax cuts rather that will come from removing them out of Obamacare or not? Do they go forward with the eventual tax cuts, including on uh, corporations that they promised? Well, they can do it and not worry about what it does to the debt. And you know what? That's going to be really popular. Or they can do it and then deal with the fact that that means there's going to have to be money that comes from somewhere else, and then they're just shifting it all around, aren't they? Then they're just redistributing the wealth differently. And all the while, the Democrats are on the sidelines saying to themselves, see, they don't know what they're doing. We're just going to give you more stuff. Don't worry about it. Republicans got to realize they are, they are the ones that get to be in the position of Ebenezer Scrooge here. The Democrats are always playing Santa Claus because they figure that if the government does collapse itself in the future... They'll be the ones in charge anyway. Who cares? Got to hit a break here, team. We'll be back right after. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with you all. Would love to hear from you. 844-900-2825. 844-900-2825 or 900-BUCK. Which is my name. All right, so as I was saying before, it was never going to be easy. The agenda is going to require a lot of heavy lifting. First, it was selling it to enough of the American people to win the election. And I mean win, of course, the presidency as well as control the House and the Senate or keep control of the House and the Senate. Um, that was step one. But steps two, three and four, to borrow from our recently announced health care reform parlance, uh, will require a lot of work. And they did not do a good job of preparing the ground for this with the health care bill. And I worry as well on tax cuts. Look, the, the tax cuts, this should be very straightforward. 
they should be able to say what they are, and we should know. And I know they're saying they have to wait, and they have to, there's budget scoring and all this stuff that's going on. Uh, speaking of budget scoring, Spicy Spicer had some words to say about the health care bill today, and the Congressional Budget Office, Spicy, was being a little feisty. Play clip 36. The one thing that they say that you did not do, that they did, had their bill scored by CBO, and you did not score it by CBO. Sure, it is being scored. Look, I don't, I mean, look, with all due respect to them, this is the same group that said, who, who passed it and then told us we could read it. The, the irony of the score is that the CBO was way off the last time. I don't think that, um, that we're waiting to, that, that that's a big issue to us right now. Of course cost matters, but look at how off they were last time. If you're looking at the CBO for accuracy, you're looking in the wrong place. Ooh, just just wait. Now the, the somebody from within the CBO maybe will will leak some information about Trump administration budgeting to damage the administration. <laughs> the, the deep state of the CBO strikes again. Uh, that might actually happen. But they're they're saying that this is that, that the long term costs, they don't want to be constrained by the early assessments of what this will look like. And I know that there's some what is it, the 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 bird rule named for uh Senator Bird, he of formerly a KKK member. That bird, right? Yes. Uh, if Republicans uh, choose tax cuts that lose revenue over the long run, um, they have to uh, they have to uh, deal with the fact that they need sixty votes, um, which prevents they have this ten year thing about deficits outside the budget scoring window and sixty votes. And you know now they get into all this procedural stuff when the reality of this all should be pretty straightforward. The problems that people have with the Obamacare repeal as it stands right now and also with the tax cuts that aren't just in the Obamacare repeal but are also supposed to be coming after that. The biggest one, as I mentioned, the corporate tax reform. We're going to go from the highest corporate taxes in the uh, in the developed world um, down to something substantial. I think we're going from 30 to, uh, 30 to 15, something like that. Uh, but they're looking at other taxes to offset this. You see, this then brings me back to the managing of expectations we need to do and also the focus that there needs to be on the Republican Party to keep them on track here. Because we didn't, we certainly weren't promised and we didn't expect that Republicans once back in power would be engaged in a big game of cost shifting deciding that, well, the central planning that was done before us, the decisions made about taxation, all of that, those weren't great. So we're just going to do a little more pruning from here, take a little more from there, and we're going to shift this all around. But that means that for taxes that we uh, reduce, we're going to up other taxes. That's not the way this is supposed to go. That's not the way this game was supposed to be played. But they're now coming up against the realities of they've inherited $20 trillion of debt in control of this government now and they can either ignore it and just live in the present or hope that growth is going to outstrip all the spending and i don't know i don't know how they're going to sell that we'll see uh we've got a lot more stay with me back in just a few buck sexton with america now where there's always something to talk about where you can trade opinions with buck not sure you'll win though just call 844-900-BUCK that's 844-900-2825 all right buck you're on
Welcome back, team. We're joined by our buddy Guy Benson. He is Town Hall's political editor, and he's also a Fox News contributor and author of End of Discussion. Mr. Benson, great to have you. Hello, Buck. How are you? I'm good. So there's a lot of back and forth, it seems, between Republicans right now on just what is the state of the Trump agenda, specifically on health care. Uh, what, what's your what's your first your first takeaway from where it stands right now? I mean, what, what's really happening down on the Hill? Is it pretty heated? Yeah, and I think it's Republicans doing what they seem to do best, which is fighting each other. Uh, I think that if you're a Republican voter or a conservative, you have to take a broader perspective and keep your eye on the ball here, which is this is an historic opportunity to reverse big parts of a terrible piece of legislation, Obamacare, uh, where American voters have given Republicans the House, the Senate, and the presidency, all the things that the Republicans said they needed to get this done. And it's just not acceptable for infighting and intra-party wrangling to derail this opportunity and to, and to choke, frankly. And so I recognize that there are some objections to the bill that's been put out, I think that there should be uh, amendments and some tweaks and some changes during this whole process. But to make a bunch of pronouncements about, oh, dead on arrival and this isn't good enough and let's do actually a whole different plan, and that is, that is irresponsible. And if you're eventually – if you are coming out already and saying that you will not support a bill that comes to the floor that guts Obamacare and replaces it with something better, not perfect, not free market, but better, then you are coming out for the survival and the continued existence and the endurance of Obamacare, which is should be a total non-starter given the fact that this party has spent the last seven years campaigning against the law. And I just think there should be pressure brought to bear on members to make the bill as good as possible. I think there are improvements, but we can't let either the hard right flank or the centrists, both of whom are making squawking noises. Yeah, well, I was going to say, Guy, are any of them saying that they won't they won't play ball? I mean, they're just saying they don't like this and they want to change it, right? Or are you hearing some that are really saying they want to scrap and start from, from, from go? That seems crazy. Well, what you have from – a number of members of the Freedom Caucus in the House and Rand Paul, is they're saying, let's not do this bill. In fact, Rand Paul said it's dead on arrival. And instead, let's just do repeal only with no replace, and we'll figure out replace later. Now, what's ironic about that from some of the folks in the Freedom Caucus and from Rand Paul is that they were some of the leading strenuous voices just a few months ago saying we cannot do repeal without uh, simultaneous replace. We have to do them together, and now they have – they've flip-flopped completely on that position to this other idea where it's, okay, let's, let's uproot the law through repeal and put nothing in its place, and then we'll figure out how to get there later on. And I can tell you this. Even if you think that that's a good plan tactically and that it would motivate people to come to the table and so on and so forth, I still think all the dynamics and infighting about what the replacement would look like would, would continue to persist – but I can tell you for a fact that that would not get the votes to pass because you have some centrists who are also annoying me on the other side saying, oh, wringing their hands. The Medicaid expansion under this bill, it's 
they're tinkering with it too much. There's too much of a reform here. There needs to be stability and protection for the people who have been signed up under the Medicaid expansion. And first of all, if you look at the Medicaid provisions in this new bill, in my mind, they are very generous. They are too generous, I think. But you have four senators sort of on the moderate center right side sending a letter to Mitch McConnell this week saying we cannot support a bill that includes these provisions on Medicaid. So you have very few votes to spare, particularly in the Senate. You have two at most. And so far we have at least three conservative members, Cruz, Lee, and Paul, suggesting that they are willing to derail the thing potentially and that it's not acceptable to them. And then you have a number of moderates carping about other things at the other end of this. And if the party cannot unify around one imperfect but better plan after seven years of complaining and after all of the work that that's been put into this, then I don't know what the point of electing Republicans is. Well, I think that's the fair question. And that's what a lot of people are going to wonder if this thing does somehow fall flat on its face. And to be fair, it's it's very early in the process for anyone to think that that's going to happen. I'm I'm hoping, Guy, that some of these voices that we're hearing, uh, you mentioned what Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, that this isn't I'm not saying it's posturing that they're being disingenuous about it, but they're this is a negotiating position. They want to push this thing in a more competition-based direction, because I I read as much of this as my eyes could get through without uh, just completely feeling like I I was reading, you know, the the back of some sort of pharmaceutical box. And I I read through the pill, 123 pages of it, and it is not what people were promised. That is true. It, It is not as free market as we were told it would be. It is not uh, as much of a pairing back of some of the goodies that were, and you mentioned Medicaid, uh, but also there's a lot of this that it Although, seems like is not based on increasing competition. I mean, there's nothing about and there's nothing about buying insurance outside of your state. State insurance yeah, commissions are still left in charge. Hang on, though. Uh, when it comes to buying insurance across state lines, is one big thing. Another one is medical malpractice reform. Neither of those things are in this bill, and here's why. It's because this is a reconciliation bill, and it can only change things that have to do with the budget. If there's anything in there that doesn't pertain to the budget and you're trying to legislate other things, that can nullify the entire reconciliation process, the whole point of which is to avoid 60 votes, to get to 51 votes, which is what the Democrats did to – jammed through the right. final part of Obamacare in 2010. But clearly so, Mike Lee and Ted Cruz are, are aware and, and others are aware of that. And so I think it brings us sure. back to they're, they're hoping to put they're hoping to get changes made to the structure of this that'll make it better. Not that they're going to be obstructionists along with Democrats who won't even push this thing through. Although we have right. to see. I, I mean, just, I'm I mean, making a prognostication here. I just want to make sure that your listeners understand when they say, yeah, why the hell isn't the state lines thing in there? Why the hell isn't the tort reform in there? It's because there are only certain things that this bill legally is allowed to do in order to keep the 51 vote threshold. And then there's two other stages of this, one of which is the uh, the HHS secretary changing a lot of regulations because Obamacare put tons of power into the hands of Sibelius. Well, Sibelius is now Tom Price. So sorry, liberals, that's going to be a very different type of person with a very different mindset. And then there'll be other legislation that would have to pass traditionally and and clear 60 votes. They're trying to jam as much of it as they possibly can into this first bill, the reconciliation bill. And look, there are parts of it as a conservative that I don't like. There's also a realization when you look at 
polling on these issues, the American people are not as enamored of small government as I wish they were. And so there are moderates from tough districts and tough states that are saying, okay, if Ted Cruz is going to draw his line in the sand over here as a negotiating position, we're going to do the same thing over here. At some point, you have to get these people together and say, we're not going to all love this bill. It's going to be too big or too small or whatever. We're not going to love it. However, every single last one of you campaigned to do the most you could to repeal and replace the law. And this is the most realistic shot we've got at it. And it does spend less, regulate less, uh, coerce less, mandate less. It's an improvement. It's, it's definitely an improvement. If they pass what the House GOP already already put forward without any changes, I think most I think most conservatives, although not all, I know some are really opposed to this, but maybe that's just in the heat of the moment. People are angry. There's a disappointment that I, I believe factors into a lot of the initial assessments because we've been waiting so long for this to come, and I understand that. Right. But uh, I also think that the stepping back for a second, the Trump administration, and by the way, I think it's interesting that, that Trump doesn't want people to use the term Trump care. Uh, it's going to be, when this thing is done and signed, however it all shakes out, it's going to be Trump care. I think we need, it was Romney yeah. care, it was Hillary care, it was Obamacare, it's going to be Trump care. Right. So, I mean, I understand Republicans right. don't have to call it that. But I also think that the, the Trump administration is going to be betting a lot on growth to deal with a counterbalance to the spending they're going to do. Because spending is popular. And you see this reflected in the current iteration of the GOP House bill, which is that people yep. want stuff. And, and yeah. this is now this it, is it popular. Spends, it spends a lot less than Obamacare does, and it does it in ways that I think are better and more free market than Obamacare. But it's still an entitlement program. I mean, right. it, it, it just is. And so... I think Charles Krauthammer said it well last night. He said, it is not grossly unfair in a broad sense to refer to this as sort of like Obamacare light, but it is definitely better than Obamacare heavy, right? And it does make a couple big, big changes, particularly on the mandate side and especially on Medicaid. There's a big entitlement reform in this bill that you know is historically, I think, important. So – Throwing the baby out with the bathwater at this point, I think, is a total non-starter. This is the framework that is either going to pass or crash and burn. You're not going to do a repeal without replace. You're not going to lard this thing up with even more spending and goodies. The framework that's been hammered out over the last number of months with a lot of careful consultation with the entire caucus, with the White House, all of that, this is the basic framework. If you can change some things and get some more people on board and build a consensus, fine. But I would much rather have much of Obamacare uprooted and supplanted with something better than to just say, well, it's not good enough, and so Obamacare forever. That is just a total red line for me. Uh, uh, but are you really – I mean, we got to go in a second, Guy, but are you really concerned that some members of the House and Senate on the GOP side are going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good here? You think that that's yes. a real concern? You, you are worried about that. Yes. I am worried. I, I, I'm not saying that it's over. I'm not saying that the thing is going off the rails. I just think there is enough of a possibility of a gang of centrists or a gang of righties getting all up in sort of in their own minds of ideological purity or reelection concerns or whatever it is and putting that ahead of advancing the ball. And I think there are some conservative groups who are, you know, basically saying, dead set against it, kill the bill. Um, I think that if that's a negotiating position to try to improve it a little bit, fine. 
But if at the end of the day you've got conservative groups agitating against yeah. voting for this it, thing, with the, like with the Democrats, it's just I, what is the point? Leave, of leave it to Republicans. The Republicans would be would be that old adage about never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I mean, this is yep. <laughs> un, unbelievable that they would uh, they would do that. But we'll have to see how it shakes out. Guy Benson is TownHall.com's yeah, political editor and Fox News contributor. Guy, great to have you, man. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Sounds good. And uh, team phone lines are open, 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton with America Now continues right after the break. So there's a fundamental problem once again when we talk about health care and the health care reform or the reform of the health care reform, which is what a repeal in place of Obamacare would be. It's that a lot of people in this country, and, and I think that <laughs> many Americans, if uh, we're talking about this issue uh, a little bit of reflection on what our expectations are would be illuminating because really it's become standard for us to think about health insurance really as subsidized health care. Um, everybody, more or less, wants somebody else to subsidize their health insurance or their health care, rather. Sorry. Uh, they want somebody else to be picking up a big part, whether it's your employer or the government or some program, somebody else picks up a big part of it. And a, a truly free market system, if we were going to be honest about it, would mean that just like if you, if you don't have health insurance or if you don't have a fire insurance and your house burns down, you don't get a check from the insurance company. People would have to be held responsible for their decisions. If it were made easy enough to get health care and someone did not have health health insurance, sorry, I'm using the terms interchangeably, if it were made easy enough to get health insurance and you did not have it, then you would be in a position where, yeah, the, the financial problems would be in your own hands. But that's not what we have. That's not even anywhere near what we have right now. What we have is everyone thinking that when you go to the doctor, you should pay just a copay. And that when you go to the hospital, you're going to pay a very small percentage with the overall care that you get. And if you don't have health insurance, well, then you're dealing with the opposite end of the spectrum where you're paying way too much. You know, where you get an IV bag for dehydration and they're charging you $500 out of pocket for it. It's just the costs are out of control if you don't have health care. And in a sense, they're far too under control if you do have a good plan. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, my plan through Obamacare is terrible and I have to pay far too much money. The deductibles are way too high. And I get all of that. But ultimately, there's, I think, a political consensus that the government needs to step in and help people here. And we, we'd all like to think that there is this uh, Ayn Randian impulse when it comes to health care that we're all going to be on our own. We'll be in a free market system. You can buy it, and that's all going to be fine. When already you look at what's being talked about right now, and it's a small fraction of the overall government involvement in the healthcare market and the spending that's going on. I mean, the House Republicans, we were just talking about this before we ended the break, are going to be, if they get this part of their American Health Care Act through, they're going to be changing the way Medicaid is financed or how Medicaid gets paid for. And the, the numbers on this, if you're not familiar with this, I just wanted to share this with all of you. Medicaid provides, in this country, Medicaid, which is a welfare program, it is free health insurance for people under a certain income threshold. Health insurance to 74 million people. That is one in five Americans. And of the 20 million who gained insurance under Obamacare, half of them gained it through 
Medicaid through expanding Medicaid in the states. So really, the it's more than half is actually the number that I've seen. So the biggest piece of care or coverage expansion that you've seen through Obamacare comes through Medicaid. And now they're looking at ways to change this. But uh, the way the Republicans want to set this up, there'll be a cap on how much the federal government gives each state per Medicaid enrollee. And then the states will be left to handle it from there. Uh, So... This would be a way that changes. This would be a, a way to spend money on Medicaid, or the spending of Medicaid would be changed uh, fundamentally. I mean, here's how the Times writes this up. Since it was created in 1965, federal funding for Medicaid grew as needs changed for the states. If more people became eligible, say, because of a recession or if costs rose because of expensive new medicines, states received more federal money. Federal spending on Medicaid flexes as states alter their policies. Under the Republican plan, federal funding for every Medicaid beneficiary would essentially freeze, rising only with the medical component of the consumer price index or the price of medical care. So that's that's it. It's going to change the way people pay for Medicaid. But this is a huge program. And this isn't going away, and they want to keep it expanded. It's, it's just amazing to me that this is the place where the discussion goes right now. All right. Got uh, a lot more coming up. 844 2825. That's 844-900-2825. 900-BUCK, B-U-C-K. Give me a ring. We're going to be talking about uh, globalization, the alleged leak of CIA data that's all over the news. Many, many topics ahead with you, team. Uh, We'll be back right after the break. Stay with me. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome back, Team Buck. Great to have you. Appreciate you spending some time with me today. 844-900-2825. All right, I love Hawaii. It is a beautiful place. Been a couple of times and and hoping to get back at some point in the relatively near future. Hawaii uh, is, is a pretty awesome place to visit. I'm sure it's a lovely place to live. And so I say that as a preface to I'm about to uh, beat up a little bit on, well, the actions of the government in Hawaii, the state of Hawaii. So it's a beautiful, wonderful place. And I love the Hawaiian uh, residents and people. But the state of Hawaii and I have have got a problem right now, at least with regard to their actions over Donald Trump's new executive order. I I told you this would happen, so I I do want to take a moment to step back and say, see, this is how the progressives play the game. So let's just review for a moment. So we're all on the same page. Donald Trump, a couple weeks ago, comes out with his executive order banning uh, temporary, I I don't even like the word ban. It was really a, you could call it a temporary stay on immigrants from seven countries, and Iraq was one of the countries then. It is not one of the countries included now. A permanent ban on Syrian refugees, some limitations on refugees. And there was also discussion of the vetting possible with the governments that were, or the, the countries that were cited in this travel executive order. Very. All you have to know, really, is when you hear someone talking about this, do they call it a travel ban or even a Muslim? If they're Left of center, they'll just refer to it. And I know the administration said ban, too, so I'm fully aware of that. But it's usually a pretty decent tip-off. Somebody who's left of center says, or somebody who is left of center, will call it a travel ban 
or if they're really left or if they're really progressive, they'll call it a Muslim ban. Even though we've crunched the numbers on this and it affects less than 12 percent of the Muslim world overall. And that would assume that it stays in perpetuity and that it, it is, in fact, a ban and not a temporary restriction on travel to the United States. So you get these three, uh, the, a bunch of lawsuits, and all of a sudden everyone's all freaked out. And some judges see this. A, ju- a federal judge up in Boston is like, look, I'm not saying I like this, but I'm, it's within the executive branch's purview to do it. And then you had these judges out out uh, out west in the, uh, the, the Court of Appeals. He had three of them. And they ruled on this. And it's a temporary thing. It has to still make its way through. The, it could still make its way through the courts, although that executive order, as I understand it, has been withdrawn. And everybody goes, OK, so here's the way this is supposed to work. The judges had their first crack at this one, or some judges did. But remember, all it takes is all it takes is a couple of federal judges, a handful of them to slow this whole thing down and, and create all kinds of uh, problems and delays for the administration. So but the federal judges look at this and they get to write out an opinion that sets out all the problems they have with this and the legal reasoning which i've talked to you about on this show and if you want to hear it you can always download previous episodes of the show on itunes uh, you can just subscribe to the show buck sex in america now you can download it on itunes it's a smooth plug buck um, but the long and the short of it is they were able to lay out what their problems were with this And then from there, you figure, okay, the administration has two options. They can take this all the way through the courts, wait for the Supreme Court to review it. Of course, we're missing a Supreme Court nominee. We're only at 4-4. Gorsuch needs to get confirmed, so there's some problems there. And then if it's 4-4, it goes back to the lower court and the lower court's Ninth Circuit. There are a lot of Obama appointees there. So they're probably going to rule against the administration. Anyway, there's all this back and forth over it. So finally, the Trump administration comes out now, and they say, okay, look, we have this new— uh, we we have a new executive order that takes into account the problems that were previously cited, and here's where it is. But it's never going to be enough. This is what I was saying to you as soon as this happened, and it was clear this was the new path. It'll never be enough because the progressives who oppose this, the Democrat Party and its progressive wing, which really controls the Democrat Party now. So to call it a, the progressive wing isn't really accurate. It's the progressive control room. They're the ones calling the shots. Centrist Democrats are uh, few and far between these days. The Democrats who get press, who get attention, who wield power, they are hard left. And their objection to this executive order on travel, also known as the travel ban or the Muslim ban, has nothing to do with, ultimately, I should say. I mean, yeah, sure, they didn't. They said that, what about people that already had visas? And they made some, there were some objections they had that I have to say were, were reasonable objections. The administration, of course, dealt with those right away. The uh, Those who already had visas should have been allowed to come into the country. They shouldn't have been held up. And those who are uh, interpreters or have been assisting U.S. armed forces shouldn't be included in this. And that's why Iraq got removed from this. So there were some objections that were reasonable. Those objections were dealt with right away by the administration. But, of course, that wasn't enough for the courts. And I mentioned to you, and we talked about it here on the show, that Judge Brinkema in Virginia really cut to the heart of the matter for the progressives because she wrote an opinion that said, this is just bigotry. This is just anti-Muslim. The problem with this is all the process issues that were raised before were just an excuse for left-wing judges to legislate from the bench 
to overrule the executive branch, overrule the commander in chief on an area that not only does he have constitutional authority, but the Congress has even added federal statute that clarifies that constitutional authority in this case, that the president can determine that any class of non-citizen, for whatever national security reason he believes, can enter the country. It is cut and dry, plain and simple. If there is law that just can be read and understood to mean what it says, that should be this, but that's not how they treat it. So they talk about the process problems. Those are addressed. And now we really will get to the heart of the matter because what angers progressives about this is that they view it as a Muslim, they view it as discriminatory against Muslims because these are now six Muslim-majority countries that are affected by this. It is temporary. It is only for a few months. There are exceptions built into this, and these are countries that were singled out by the Obama administration. They are completely unmoved by this because you know what this really turns into is a referendum on Donald Trump's Islamophobia. For the left, that's what this is about. They don't think it's about security. They don't think it's about protecting this country. They don't even think it's about the executive branch asserting its authority over this issue. For them, for the left, for the Democrats, the judges that will be looking at this who are, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second, the, the next one is going to look at it is, surprise, an Obama appointee. This is about Trump's Islamophobia. It's And it's even cited here. So how does Hawaii factor into all this? I want to move our conversation forward after getting us all on the same page. Hawaii is now the first state that is challenging Trump's new travel ban or his new executive order on travel, as I like to call it. But yeah, his travel ban. And it's going to go before an Obama appointee, Derek Kahala Watson. He's the federal judge who has agreed to hear this. And this should be familiar to you. The objections that Hawaii, that the state of Hawaii is going to, uh, has raised about this. And they're asking for an immediate, remember, remember, they're not asking for just a decision. They're asking for an immediate, an immediate stay, an overrule, a federal judge to overrule once again the commander in chief and the executive branch on this one because of the, you know, there has to be two things here immediate harm. And the long-term likelihood that they will win on the merits. So this federal judge is going to be asked to, one, believe that preventing people, and not in all cases or every case, but preventing people from six of the 200-some-odd countries in the world and the between 40 and almost 50-ish-some-odd Muslim-majority countries in the world, six of them, are singled out here in this executive order. Not allowing them to travel to Hawaii is an egregious harm against the state. And the way they make that as a case is to say that it hurts their the state school system there, the university system, and it hurts uh, their... Look, they're, they're saying that it hurts them when it comes to tourism. I, I don't mean to overly generalize, but I don't think there are a whole... First of all, why is Hawaii different than any other state that's not... that? is not raising that objection yet, although I'm sure others will. I don't know how many people from uh, the Sudan or Iran are traveling to Hawaii uh, for any purpose, tourism or otherwise, but I'm assuming it's a pretty small number, I would guess. Um, And also keep in mind that there are already all kinds of restrictions that affect citizens of foreign countries. Iran is a great example of this. There are wonderful people in Iran. 
There are fantastic. Iran is a nation of about 70 million people. Has an evil, autocratic, Islamist, Islamist supremacist, theocratic government that screams about death to America, death to the great Satan, the little Satan Israel. We, we know all of this. They burn American flags, and it's oppressive and tyrannical and has imprisoned its own people. There are 70 million people. There are a lot of really nice, great people in Iran. That's just a, that's just a fact of reality. You cannot do business with any of those. You cannot do business in Iran. There are sanctions. Well, now it's actually changing, of course, but for a long time, thanks to the Obama administration, that's changing, but it's slow. Uh, but there are restrictions on what you can do with Iranian with uh, with any Iranian business. That's not to say that she, that every Iranian is a bad person at all. It's not to it's not to say that there's something inherently wrong with doing business with somebody in, in Iran. It's about punishing the regime. All right, it's about isolating it from the rest of the world. But that comes with a cost, and the cost is that the people of Iran, who don't get a say in their own government, suffer economically and otherwise. But we understand that this is, this is the way the international relations works. We elect people, we put them in power, and they make decisions about who in the rest of the world we can do business with, who we can visit, who gets visas, all of that. And it's not always, this is what the progressives don't get. It's not always entirely fair in the sense that there are going to be people that are affected by these policies that aren't bad people, that haven't done anything wrong, but that's just the way it is. In the case of Hawaii bringing this, and as I said, I have a special, I have a soft spot for Hawaii. In the case of Hawaii, the state of Hawaii bringing this action, they're saying, well, this is going to negatively affect some people that would otherwise come and visit. And yeah. That's true of all kinds of sanctions we have. That's true. That that affects uh, trade agreements. We deal with foreign countries as entities, and that means that there are people that live in those countries that are affected by the policies that their governments make, and that stinks for them, but that's just reality. And in the case of Sudan and Iran and Yemen and these countries that are on the list, yeah, it's not the fault of every person from those countries. No one's saying it is, but it's not about trying to be fair to every every person in a foreign country as a non-U.S. citizen. It's about the protection of U.S. citizens. And this is ultimately what Democrats refuse to accept or understand. They view this only as a referendum on Trump's Islamophobia. They don't care about anything other than that. The American people see this. The American people, including uh, 1% of the U.S. population that is Muslim, they see this, and they get to make a determination. Well, is this really about being mean to people because of their country of origin or even their religion or their their ethnic background? Or is this about trying to prevent Islamic State or other jihadist infiltration of the United States for the purposes of a mass casualty attack? Terrorism. And if the if the in the analysis of this, there's a very small chance of that terrorism, what much of the Democrats, the progressive left doesn't understand is that a lot of Americans, and the Americans who voted for this administration, I think, fall squarely in this category, don't want, they're willing to say, you know, for 90 days, we're going we're gonna to take a pause here and think about this. Even if it's a very small possibility that a refugee from Syria or a refugee from Sudan or somebody visiting from one of those countries, very small, that they would be an ISIS infiltrator or an al-Qaeda cell, part of an al-Qaeda cell. They don't want to take that chance. But what they see is a Democrat Party that has become so globalist in its mindset that it really does want to extend rights, even constitutional rights, to non-citizens. 
That's at the root of all of this. They don't make any distinction between U.S. citizens in their minds and those who have come here illegal in terms of the rights they should get, in terms of the benefits they should get, in terms of their access to government. They want the illegals here to be voting. We know that. They also think that everyone around the world should be able to come here. And it's not in the president's hands to impede them. Well, guess what? It is as a matter of law and as a constitutional issue. And this is going to face quite a showdown. All right, we've got to hit a break. Team Buck, we'll be right back. Welcome back, team. We've got Lisa in California on the line. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Buck. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Go, Team Buck. I Go, just Team Buck. To... Yep, original squad, baby. <laughs> That's uh, how we like it. Thanks, Lisa. Guy Benson was on, and he had said something about reconciliation, that the way that they had pushed it through the Democrats with through reconciliation. There's only so many things that we can tinker with. Otherwise, we get back to the 60 people have to vote for it before it passes rather than 51. Can you explain more to me about what it is that we're able to tinker with before we get through? Sure. The, 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 short, the short answer, the short version is that reconciliation can only deal with budgetary issues. So it can only deal with, with the spending of, of money. Uh, so that puts limitations on what, you know, for example, if you wanted to say that, okay, state health, state health insurance authorities no longer get to determine what an acceptable plan is for their state, uh, that would be, or, 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 or you know, federal, the federal government can't tell states what's acceptable or that states can't determine what's acceptable for themselves. It's just an open and free marketplace for health insurance for any American anywhere in the country. That would have to come through a, an act of legislation that would require um, a, a, a filibuster-proof majority of 60 votes as opposed to reconciliation, which only requires 51. So this is, And by the way, this is a mirror image of how Obamacare was passed because originally they got through Obamacare and when they had the 60, and then they were able to get through the end parts of it under reconciliation with 51. So this is not, this is not a new... This is not a new thing. This is uh, this is something that it, it was part of part of the the birth of Obamacare involved this reconciliation versus regular legislative process, and now to remove it, it looks like they're going to go through similar pathways. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a huge bill, so we could talk about a lot of different parts of it. But oh, we lost Lisa. I'm going to assume by her silence that yes, it does make sense. So there is that. Uh, we will be. Uh, uh, let me see. I wanted to finish up on the uh, the, the travel ban, oh, where I think the travel ban is going. So uh, there, this is ultimately they're they're saying that this is a question of it being unconstitutional because of the First Amendment. They'll say a lot of other things too, because it's also about obstructing the president's agenda. And and there's a this is about the politics surrounding all this as much as it is about a particular travel ban. See, here's what I wanted to get into before. This doesn't affect very many people. This doesn't affect. There, there are not that many travelers coming from these. First of all, traveling here from Iran, you can imagine it's already uh, pretty. There's already uh, issues there. Um, but this doesn't. For a, a vast majority of Americans, Trump's executive order that has a pause. Keep in mind that getting a visa in some of these countries already takes months. So they're putting a it, it's a months long and never mind be, becoming a refugee. And I know they're putting a pause on the refugees as well as part of this. And they're also taking 50,000 as opposed to uh, what was it? 80,000 last year, the Obama administration. So they're cutting back the number of overall refugees. 
but and I, I still think, by the way, we should go with that proposal where if Trudeau wants to have open arms for refugees, he should have open arms for illegals as well and say anybody who's illegal in the United States, they should just come to Canada. I mean, they, they, there were a lot of people, what, what didn't we, a lot of uh, uh, people who dodged the draft, as I understand it, went to Canada. Well, a lot of people who are illegal aliens, the Canadians should welcome them with open arms. If they really are about tolerance and diversity to the extent that Trudeau and his uh, fellow left-wingers up in Canada say they are, they should just take, they should offer anybody who's in the U.S. illegally who doesn't want to go home to wherever they, they have actual citizenship and came from, they should be able to go to Canada. I would like to see that discussion happen because then you would force the Canadians to have the same moment of reckoning that the Europeans have had, which is, well, there's it's not even just the security cost. That's a part of this. There is a cultural cost and change. Assimilation is a process that only works if there is time for the newly arrived to assimilate into the dominant culture. If you overwhelm the system with new arrivals... Then all of a sudden, the assimilation process ceases to work the way it's supposed to, because why assimilate? Why not change the host country culture to the new arrivals culture? Oh, that's a thing that can happen, isn't it? Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Well, Trump is very proud of the health care bill the GOP has put forward. In fact, why don't we hear it from the Donald himself? Play clip 33. Released by the House of Representatives and encouraged by members of both parties, this will be a plan where you can choose your doctor. This will be a plan where you can choose your plan. <laughs> and you know what the plan is. This is the plan. And we're going to have uh, a tremendous, I think we're going to have a tremendous success. We have to remember Obamacare is collapsing. And it's in bad shape. And we're going to take action. Some are not as excited about this, like Senator Rand Paul, clip 34. Is the Republicans are in agreement on repeal, but we're not in agreement on replacement. That's why we should vote on the one thing that we all agreed on. About a year ago, we voted on clean repeal. We don't agree on replacement, but we could have a separate vote on Medicaid expansion. And I'm guessing Democrats and big government Republicans would probably come together and find that they will expand Medicaid. Many conservatives aren't going to vote for that, mainly because it doesn't work. We're, we're dishonest in the accounting. We can't pay for the current Medicare. It's $35 trillion in the hole. The current Medicaid is, is unfunded. And then we're going to add new entitlement programs to that. If you really want to have Medicaid for everyone in all these states, you should be honest with the people and you should double or triple the state income tax and double or triple the, the sales tax. Now, I'm not for that, but that's what it would take if you were honest. Instead, we say, oh, federal government's going to pay for it. Federal government has no money. All right. Well, what's true? What's not? Who can referee between these two for us? We've got Ovik Roy on the phone now. He's Forbes opinion editor, author of Transcending Obamacare and How Medicaid Fails the Poor. Ovik, great to have you back on this very interesting topic. Hey, buddy. Long time no talk. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, let's let's just start. Before, I, I wanted to have you respond to the rant, because obviously, tr- look, Trump is trying to push an overall agenda, and he's not going to be the nitty-gritty details of Obamacare, and so we can put that on hold for a second. I wanted you to respond to what Rand Paul said there about giving everyone Medicaid. Is he overstating? Where does this? Where do you come down on this? 
Yeah, he's not, he's not only overstating, he's actually completely misrepresenting the bill. I've had my criticisms of the American Health Care Act, the new House Republican bill. You can read about them at Forbes. But Rand Paul's criticisms actually don't make any sense. So Rand Paul is saying that uh, this, this Medicaid reform is terrible. Actually, this bill, for all of its flaws, is the most profound entitlement reform of our lifetimes, Buck. This plan would be like welfare reform times 10 in terms of what it does to put the Medicaid program on sound fiscal footing, give more flexibility to states and individuals to restructure the program and make sure that it doesn't go bankrupt. Can you give us the quick and dirty on how it does that? Yeah. So basically what it does is it uses this uh, procedure called a per capita cap. So it's basically think of it like a block grant, but instead of it being a block grant to states, it's a block grant to individuals. So the idea is that contrary to the Medicaid program today, which is truly entitlement today, if you're enrolled in Medicaid and you end up costing, you know, spending or consuming a million dollars of health care, the hospitals and everyone else by law have to provide that care to you. And the taxpayer by law has to pay, pay you for it. That's called an entitlement. What uh, the per capita cap system would do is it would say, we're going to allocate to each enrollee in the Medicaid program, let's call it $6,000. And, you know, that'll grow at a certain inflation rate over time. But the idea is you're, you're going to have to get coverage or an HSA account or whatever it is with that $6,000, and that's it. Uh, and so the program becomes a defined contribution rather than a defined benefit. It puts, it puts a cap on Medicaid spending. Is it kind of like a health care voucher then, in a sense? It's like you're getting money and you can do with it what you want? It's not exactly like a voucher, and I wish it were. And so I've advocated, let's, let's give, I mean, I, I should put it a different way. I don't wish it were a voucher in the strict sense of that term. But what I, what I would say is that I wish that we were giving tax credits uh, to people instead of the per capita caps. All right. So, so it's, it's like a voucher credit. for the state, but not for the individual. Yeah, so what ends up happening is the, the state ends up getting the, the, the payment, and then they, you know, they, they're able to run their program block grant style in a more flexible way. So in an ideal world, the individual would get that money directly and then be able to spend it uh, just like you would with the tax credit. Unfortunately, they didn't go that far, but it's still a massive transformative achievement. Again, the most profound entitlement reform in the history of American entitlements in our lives, uh, and, and, and a really important uh, piece of progress that people like Rand Paul, who claim to be about limited government, need to be saying good things about while they're criticizing the things about the law they don't like. The all right, but you did take, and I read your piece in Forbes, you did take the initial GOP bill to the woodshed. So tell us where, where it deserves to get uh, you know pushed around a little bit. Yeah, so, okay, so the Medicaid piece is very, very strong. The, the part that's very weak that could jeopardize the whole thing are the tax credits uh, for health insurance and not that they're mere existence. So there's some people like Rand Paul who say that any tax credits that you give to people who are uninsured is like a new entitlement. It's welfare. We've got to stop that. That's not exactly right because today we massively subsidize health insurance for a lot of people. We subsidize it for the wealthy through Medicare and certain tax breaks for employers. We subsidize it through Medicaid, et cetera. So the idea here is let's actually even it out. Let's have a system where we allow some people who are just over the poverty line to also get a a tax credit 
but save spending elsewhere as the overall uh, scale of government is actually significantly lower. That would not only you know make our healthcare system work better, it actually puts more people in HSAs. It puts more people in private coverage. It puts more people in a consumer-driven, market-based system for healthcare. And that's what we've always said, right? The Ben Carson plan for health insurance and health reform, give everybody an HSA and let them control the money. So the more we can move to that kind of a system where patients are controlling the healthcare dollars, the more costs will come down for everybody. So that's a market-based reform uh, that we should embrace. But the problem so I, now I'm, I'm praising that aspect. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds good so far. You've got to take us yeah, over to the, bad, the dark side, the bad side here. Yeah. So the, the problem is that the, the precise technical structure of the tax credits in the Republican bill are a total mess that will end up driving up premiums and actually uh, driving more people out of the insurance market, not more people into it. So that's basically the problem is it's going to have this brand on it that it's, oh, it's tax credits, it's free market-based health reform, and the results aren't going to be very good. And then everyone's going to say, oh, this free market stuff, it's really terrible. Right? Wait, so but it's, why it's, isn't it good, though? So you're saying tax credits, what, why are they not good? Because the structure of them is such that they don't repeal enough of the Obamacare regulations because they can't through reconciliation. They can only repeal some of the Obamacare regulations, but not most of them. And so if you keep the Obamacare regulations in place because you can't repeal them through reconciliation, and then you repeal the individual mandate, and you have tax credits that aren't uh, structured in the right way so that poor, uninsured people can afford the premiums that will result from the, that combination of reforms, you're going to throw a lot of people off their health insurance. So you're going to destabilize the private insurance markets, and that's going to lead to more calls from the left for single-payer health care and everything else. What do you make? So, uh, what do you make of the re- response to this that we're hearing, of course, from D.C. That well, that's just because we can't do it yet through reconciliation. We have to wait. Do you buy that, or is that a dodge? Uh, it's it's a half dodge, and I half buy it. So it's true that they that, that reconciliation limits their their ability to do important things that we need to do. But the bill, as it's structured now, still doesn't do everything it could do to reform the system in a more freedom-oriented direction. So it's it's half a dodge, it's half an excuse, but it's half true. Okay, so there are ways then that this could be fixed. I mean, meaning Absolutely. that this is not, that nobody should be saying this bill's dead on arrival or it's a disaster. Right. I mean, we've got, we've got members of the GOP here. Play clip 34 for a second, please. Oh, whoops, we don't have that one. Well, we got members of the GOP. I'll give you the summary. Members of the GOP saying, oh, this is this is terrible. You're telling me it's not terrible or yeah. it doesn't have to be terrible. There's no reason yeah, to say I, we need to start from scratch. If you go to the website of my think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P dot O-R-G, the first article on the website is about how you would fix the American Health Care Act, which is the official title of the House Republican bill, how you would fix the American Health Care Act so that it would actually cover more people than Obamacare, but at much lower cost with less spending, less government intrusion, et cetera. So there are there are fixes to this bill that would make it much stronger than it is today. Nobody should be running to the exit saying this is the end of the process. Now, there's no guarantees that Congress will get to where it needs to go. But to say that today, you know, it's dead on arrival, there's no way in hell I'm going to ever vote for this. That's a mistake. And, and uh, people who say that are 
are you know making the perfect the enemy of the good and politics is never about the perfect uh, being you know it's not about achieving perfection it's about moving the ball down the field and and we have the opportunity to significantly move the ball down the field with the right legislation now i have seen that there are some organizations including a lot of headlines today around how the american medical association opposes the gop bill a lot of hospitals and doctor networks are coming out saying they oppose it is that just politics masquerading as expertise or what are their what are their yeah. problems with this it's crony capitalism. Here's the thing. Uh, what does Obamacare do? It takes taxpayer money and reallocates it from your pockets to the healthcare industry. So, of course, the health and care industry is going to come out against any bill that cuts spending on healthcare, government spending on healthcare, taxpayer spending on healthcare. So, if the industry is objecting to the bill, if hospitals are objecting to the bill, that's the first sign that Republicans are doing something right. All right. Well, it seems like it seems like this is going to continue on. Do you have any any predictions for where all this is going to go? Listen, I worry that a lot of this kind of initial, oh, it's dead on arrival stuff is going to make it really hard to pass repeal and replace in the in the in the House of Representatives. So I really urge your listeners, tell their representatives, calm the hell down and work together, work on this bill, make it better. And, and let's actually get this down. Let's get this done. Ovik Roy is Forbes opinion editor and author of Transcending Obamacare and How Medicaid Fails the Poor. Ovik, great to have you, sir. Thanks for your time. Hey, thanks, buddy. Uh, phone lines are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We'll be back in just a few. Hold the line. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's, why. that's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut, my friends. Today is called by some, at least. And well, it's called International Women's Day, which, as I told you yesterday, has its roots in socialist organizing movements uh, or socialist movements that organize labor. But it is also a day without a woman. Let's hear one of the chants. Thirty-nine. A day without a woman is a day without me. A day without a woman is a day without me. A day without a woman is a day without me. A day without a woman is a day without me. I strike today, sisters, because until President Agent Orange is still in office, our fight is a fight against fascism, against misogyny, and against Islamophobia. Well, what, first of all, what does Islamophobia or, or fascism have to do with any of this? Second of all, I'm pretty sure if we asked her for a definition of fascism, that would be interesting. And, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of that going on. Chance, but there's actually not a lot of it now that I think about it because I'm reading the reports, and today didn't go as planned for the A Day Without a Woman organizers. Uh, Sarah Westwood joins us now. She's a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Sarah, thank you for calling in. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, so I'm already reading some of the uh, after-action reports here, and there's a lot of, even in the New York Times, well, we all knew that this march wasn't going to be as big as the Women's March after Trump's election, and this is really about setting the groundwork for future organizing. And and I read this, and I think to myself, well, this is because this just kind of fizzled in most places, didn't it? But what have you seen? What can you tell us? Well, certainly the the protests 
since Inauguration Day have been getting smaller and smaller. And from the Democratic standpoint, they still haven't quite found a way to capitalize on all of that energy. They were hoping to turn it into a sort of productive force the way the Tea Party was for Republicans. But when you have these diminishing turnouts for the the protests, like the Day Without a Woman was a great example of that today, you see that they're sort of running out of time to capitalize on that energy before people just return to business as usual. Yeah, it seems like this is going out with a bit of a whimper. I mean, I know they shut down, didn't they? Was it the Prince George's uh, County School District or Alexandria? There were a few big school districts right in the Washington, D.C. area where they just said that uh, our teachers aren't showing up today, right? But it looks like they didn't. Sh- the teachers might have been some of the only people that were actually showing up to these marches. That I- I'm reading reports that they were in the in the low hundreds in some cities that that's not exactly going to uh, light the world on fire. No. And I mean, the irony of shutting down schools, forcing women to participate who didn't want to by some of them having to stay home and take care of their children in some instances is just a little ironic. Uh, But certainly there were, there were demonstrations concentrated in these urban areas that naturally support more liberal causes but but it wasn't nearly on the level of like you mentioned the march for women that that spread a lot more evenly throughout the country right after the inauguration when energy was a lot higher and melania trump hosted an international women's day lunch at the white house how did that go over you know the press wasn't allowed to view her remarks but it really? highlight the number of no it was a closed door lunch so the press was brought in to see everyone to see her entrance she got a standing ovation but then the pool as it's called was escorted out before she got to talk but it was a great way for the administration to showcase the high level women in the administration you had education secretary betsy devos there you had linda mcmahon who was a small business administrator you had kellyanne conway the first woman to ever run a successful presidential campaign. She's now counselor to the president. So it was a great way for the administration to combat that image that they are anti-woman by showcasing how many women have been elevated into levels of prominence in the administration. Well, it certainly seems like they're going to have to find a a new line of attack uh, against the administration other than a day without... There's not going to be another day without a woman march from what I'm seeing here because it did not have the intended effect and it's not surprising because if you're really going to have a a work stoppage, which is how this was at least initially described, you got to stop something. A few people from here and there, other than a few school districts, a few people from here and there is not going to have enough of an impact on industry. And what you do have, I think, is a situation where a, a progressive movement now has to do some damage control of, wow, these really are just far left feminists and progressive ideologues who care enough about this to do anything much of, the, much of the rest of the country just wants to go about their business. And that's the fear that Democrats have, right, is that all this energy is concentrated in these highly progressive areas that already vote heavily Democratic. So it's not going to turn into any electoral gains for them. And I'll tell you, when it comes to women's issues, so often the, the Democrats and, and further left liberals have made women's issues and abortion sort of synonymous and so you're automatically alienating a large portion of women when you hear women's issues start to be brought up because so many of them automatically think that you're immediately engaging in a discussion about abortion and that's sort of a purposeful thing that democrats have done 
but it's made these sort of women's issues that might otherwise be appealing. I mean, I'm a woman. I I agree women should be equal, but because the women's movement has so heavily embraced the abortion rights movement, uh, it's not broadly appealing. Well, I pointed out yesterday on the show that the uh, women's march has been has been very inclusive of trans of men who are transgender, for example, as part of their uh, their uh, supposed civil rights movement within the w- within the progressive left right now. But women who are pro-life are, are not really considered to be a part of this whole thing. Right. You'll recall that on uh, the day of the Women's March, the day after Inauguration Day, there were pro-life groups of women who were turned away. They were told that their platform uh, is not consistent with the platform of the organizers of the Women's March. So it's not as inclusive as some of the Democrats uh, would like it to be or or like to project it as. And that is a, a big problem for, like I said, these Democrats who want to turn this energy into something that will help them regain some power somewhere in the state houses, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, maybe one day the presidency. But when they are having such a narrow interpretation of women's rights or when they are tacking so far to the left, when it comes to these populist demonstrations, it's likely not going to yield actual results for the Democratic Party. I see here a piece under your violence. Switching gears, uh, if we if we can, um, White House has no reason to believe Trump is a target of Russia investigation. This is a piece you wrote up on WashingtonExaminer.com. What's the latest there? Well, as you know, after the president made some pretty sensational allegations on his Twitter account over the weekend that President Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower during the election, there's been a lot of questions about what he was referring to. Uh, And so the administration has been careful to distinguish between what the president claimed that there was potential wiretapping and any admission or confirmation that there was at any time a counterintelligence investigation that was targeting Trump that would have yielded that wiretapping. I mean, this is a, a thin line for the administration to walk because Attorney General Jeff Sessions, as you remember, has gone to great lengths not to confirm or deny the existence of any Russia-related criminal investigation, right? So the administration is sort of hinting that there was maybe some impropriety behind the scenes when it comes to surveilling President Trump or some of his associates, but they really don't want to confirm or deny the existence of that investigation because that it goes against the Justice Department's protocol. It's fascinating, though, because now the what what was used, I believe, by much of the media to at least a, create a perception that there was real wrongdoing with regard to the Trump Russia, uh, sorry, Trump Russia, Trump Russia, uh, Trump Russia conspiracy. Uh, they were saying, well, there's an they created this perception of an investigation because where there's an investigation, there must be some wrongdoing. Now, by Trump saying, well, you wiretap me, the pushback to this has been, no, there's no wiretap. There was never a wiretap. That's crazy. I, I think that the the Trump team, in a sense, now also then uh, pulls back the curtain a little bit and says, "Okay, well, if there's no wiretap on anybody, and this is such a crazy idea, what kind of investigation of Trump ties to the Russians can really be underway?" I, I, I think it's a, a way of of making a lot of Trump's enemies here discount that there could even be a serious investigation into those ties that the FBI or anyone else is involved in. Well, you're right; they can't have it both ways. They can't have it that there was no surveillance and that there was. Uh no investigation. I mean, and, and you're right that there is sort of this 
raining now. These allegations have gone on for months. So a lot of Trump's opponents are trying to continue this this narrative that there were these inappropriate contacts between Trump campaign operatives and Russian officials. But there's been no evidence of that so far. And uh, the director, the former director of national intelligence under Obama, James Clapper, had to admit that uh, this weekend when he was asked. He said he's never seen any ties uh, between Trump campaign operatives and Russian officials. And he, he sort of had the caveat of, but I'm not in government anymore. So, you know, after January 20th, I wasn't privy to any intelligence. But the bulk of this investigation that Democrats have pointed to all along, that did take place under former President Obama. I mean, to hear Democrats tell it, this investigation has been going on since last summer. And if it hadn't yielded any intelligence by January 20th when Clapper left office, it's hard to imagine where they would have found new evidence between January 20th and the beginning of March in those six weeks uh, of evidence that of events that took place during the campaign months and months earlier. Uh, So, so far, nobody's been able to point to where or why these allegations are coming from. And it is starting to become obvious that there's not much left for them to dig into. Right. Well, this is, this is what you're left with. I mean, the the, the Trump, this is amazing because in a sense, people say, Oh, Trump, his his tweets and they made Obama so mad. I saw that headline on CNN and Wall Street Journal reporting too. Obama is livid, and then CNN said no, he wasn't livid. He was just, you know, he was just angry or whatever. Uh, but this is now forcing uh, this is now forcing a a look into the details of this reporting that's been used to construct the narrative of Trump Russia international conspiracy uh, from the get go. And it, well, if the reporting that says that. The wiretaps that existed to create this are not true. What are you left with? And I'm just somebody, and this is just an analytic point, Sarah, but I'm somebody who refuses to believe that we can find out about the specifics of a phone call between General Flynn and Ambassador Kiselyak of Russia. But if there were some incredibly damning bit of evidence that already existed on these Trump ties somewhere, we wouldn't know about it. I'm pretty confident that that's not the sort of thing that would stay under wraps at DOJ or anywhere else. You're exactly right. And so it's made the Democrats calls now for a special prosecutor to investigate seem that much more um, not credible because there, there isn't that underlying evidence to warrant such a step and Attorney General Sessions has already taken the pretty extraordinary step of recusing himself, which, as you recall, Attorney General Loretta Lynch did not do in the Hillary Clinton case, even though it was an investigation of a former cabinet official, even though she had met with Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, on a private jet in a meeting that was supposed to be kept secret. She did not recuse herself. And that investigation proceeded without a special prosecutor. Uh, and Democrats at that time had said there's no need for a special prosecutor. We, we don't use special prosecutors unless it's something extraordinary. And now when you have this Russia-related investigation clearly winding to a close, being closed down organically without any finding of wrongdoing, now they're starting to call for a special prosecutor. 
uh, long after you would assume the bulk right. of the investigation has taken place. The, the conclusion, <laughs> the conclusion is, is is ahead of all the evidence here, which is well, well, because we haven't found something now, we really need to dig and find more. Well, that's that's not how it. That's certainly not how it works with a criminal investigation. Usually, you know, when when they've already looked into you and they can't find anything, they're not supposed to say, well, now we need to really turn the screws tighter. But we got to leave it there for now. Sarah Westwood is the White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Check out her latest on Washington Washington Examiner. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you. And uh, Team Buck, we are going to hit a break and be right back, so hold the line. Isn't it amazing how quickly the story turns around with Trump and Russia and all the investigations into uh, what he's, well, the investigation that they're now saying requires a special prosecutor but we're also being told that there's no wiretapping of Trump or any of his senior associates. So why would we want to do more investigating? What they really are going to try to do, of course, is to tie in the uh, Russia hacking, which is it's all based on intelligence, the intelligence community's assessment that has been made public that says that there was, in fact, hacking that went on and that the Russians were behind the hacking. So. If you believe that, and and I do, uh, but if you believe that and then want to find out more, okay, but let's understand a few things as we go into this. First of all, there's really not much more to understand. Uh, the Russians did not do anything particularly magical or skilled or amazing by getting into Podesta's email account and hacking into the DNC uh, email uh, email server as well. It was very straightforward that it was not any tactics that aren't haven't already been described, aren't already known. I mean, they they fished John Podesta and he gave somebody he gave uh, somebody his password. That's you know, this is like saying, well, how do we prevent somebody from wearing a hotel uh, hotel uniform walking up to you in the hallway and saying, hey, I need to get into your room. Give me your hotel key card. You can have an awareness campaign, I guess. Don't give somebody your hotel key card unless you're really sure that that's... But you see what I'm saying. They're pretending like we need to find out so much more about Russian involvement in the election or what Russia did. And unless they really want to suggest that there was some hacking of the actual servers that took place or, or hacking of the actual voting machines, which nobody has, nobody credible or serious has said that yet, the calls for an investigation of Russian hacking are really just a way to try to fold in more investigation of Trump-Russia ties. The hacking story doesn't get you very far. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything. The intelligence community has already made its findings on this public. We already know they believe that Russia wanted to help Donald Trump, that they were engaged in a campaign to uh, bring down the public perception of Podesta and Hillary Clinton and the DNC. And it was some pretty interesting stuff. I, I don't believe that that swayed the election, and I don't think there's any— this is one of the things where you can never prove it one way or the other, but a reasonable a reasonable assessment of this, I honestly believe, is that there's no way this changed the outcome of the election. But even if it did, there's no way to do a redo. So the congressional calls for an investigation to this so we can prevent it from happening in the future, to me, it's—prevent what? I mean, we know what happened, but you're going to stop what exactly? You're going to stop somebody from responding to an email with their password? This wasn't some brute force attack using Russian supercomputers that overwhelmed the grid and got into it. No, 
This was this was just old school stuff for at least old school in the internet sense, and it looked bad for Democrats. Keep in mind, no one even talks anymore about how Donald Trump's tax return, at least a part of it, found its way out into the public eye. And I'm pretty sure no one even talks about it anymore. Very few people even know that George W. Bush's college transcript, I think, was leaked. Uh, and that's uh, Obama's college transcripts to this day still have not been made public. Now, not all presidents make their college transcripts public, but... Uh, Notable that that just went away. Why can't we? Why can't we see that? That's as easy as Obama signing a piece of paper. It says, "Yeah, you can see my college transcripts." People say, "Oh, Buck, are you saying that he wasn't born in the country?" No, I think that we'd probably see that he was like a BB minus student at Columbia, who then managed to be the editor in chief of Harvard Law Review. That's the only reason I can think of. And how did he manage to be the editor in chief of Harvard Law Review? I, you know, I, I leave that to others who know him better and have a better understanding of his record than I do. But uh, yeah, that's what I would see happening uh, there. And the records, anyway, that when the press got access to Trump's, getting me back on track here for a second, got access to Trump and uh, at least part of his tax returns. And they still talk about this too. Like once we get the tax returns, we'll see, then we'll see everything. Then we'll know everything. This is such a ridiculous argument in the criminal sense of things, because the IRS has it. If there was reason to believe that Trump was involved in illegal, illicit financial activity, that was in his tax return. They can give that to the FBI. <laughs> this is like, oh, Trump's got this brilliant scheme to hide his illicit financial international dealings by telling the IRS what they are. Think about how dumb this is. But this is what people put out there. Oh, if only we could see the tax returns. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Let's get Kevin up in Boston on WKOX into the action here. Kevin, good to hear from you. Hey, it's great to hear from you, Buck. I just wanted to say before I get to my point of the evening of the day that uh, we never had to worry about Barack Obama's tax returns. Remember, when he never had a hot dog stand or a lemonade stand, and he's not filing a return that's, let's say, up in the Mitt Romney category as Donald Trump, 15, 20,000 pages, so you're going to take out five or six pages where people just do not understand our tax codes, our tax system whatsoever, or even when he, he did get a sixty million. He did get a sixty million dollar, along with Michelle Obama, sixty million dollar book deal. Which everybody that I've spoken to so far who knows anything about the book industry is like, well, that's they're they're actively going to lose money on that deal, the publisher. But it's the Obamas, so you got to just throw, you know, there's no amount of money is enough. That that's the approach they take. Sixty five is what I heard. Oh, sixty five. Yeah. Yeah, sixty five. And here's the guy that headed up the Harvard Book Review. Without on his law, law review, not 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 book review, but yeah, no, <laughs> law no, review. Did I say book? Pardon me. The yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Not on his acumen of writing skills, grammar, or journalism whatsoever. It was a popularity contest. The same contest that took place when he was introduced to us in 2007. This young senator, which everyone, if the press 
was due diligent at that time, don't you think it should have been the man that graduated from Harvard Law, as with his wife? His wife had to first surrender her law license, as with Obama. It says Obama, Barry Satoro voluntarily surrendered. Okay, we're, we're going we're going a little we're going a little too far down the uh, down the Obama Obama history uh, side right. of things here. So, what what else did you want to talk about, Kevin? I just wanted to say, well, how coincidental. I was part of a conference today on cybersecurity. One of our keynote speakers, which I did not think he was actually going to come, was uh, James Comey, the FBI director. Here I was about to talk about that news story. You were there when he talked about this? <laughs> this is, this is the I next was... story I was going to hit. Yeah, uh, the Woods Institute of Advanced Studies, part of Boston College. He came in to address our forum on um, espionage and firewalls and uh, counter uh, um, cyber security um, and the measures we take. But what I get a kick out of it, it should have been April 1st, because here's a man that can't even keep his own house in order that's addressing us on how to contain cybersecurity. So... Um, Wait, so, he, so he was, he was a, he was, yeah, this is, by the way, you were written up in the Daily Mail, your, your, your conference. The quote here is that no such thing as absolute privacy in America. FBI director warns that even our communications with our spouses are within judicial reach. Uh, that, uh, I assume he said that. What else did he say that was of note? Well, uh, yeah, very good point there. Um, but basically that, uh, that it's open invitation once you go to address a keyboard in any which way, whether it be a social media or whatnot, that the grounds, as most of us know, that there's always it's always privy for. Yeah, say, if, if you're using if you're using anything that's transmitting electronic data, there, there's a way to get to that data. If there's somebody on the other end, there's a way to get it in between. Uh, Kevin from Boston, great to have you, man. Thanks for calling. It's so interesting. I, I didn't even plan this, believe it or not. I was going to talk about this Daily Mail piece next. Uh, so I've mentioned it before. My background is as a, a CIA officer, CIA analyst uh, on uh, Iraq mostly, but also uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, so whenever I see these discussions come up as somebody who was inside the intel community and uh, now sees all this debate that's broken out in the early uh, era of the Trump administration over many of these issues, it has a particular resonance uh, with me. I mean, I, I feel very strongly about some of these issues because on the one hand, I know that you need to have the tools to be able to get the bad guys. And on the other hand, I'm not even sure that well-informed people who read the newspapers and pay attention or, or watch the news, however, you just read the internet, whatever, however you get your information, well-informed citizens uh, know the full extent of the vulnerabilities that we all have when we use these internet-based and mass communication tools and have a, have a real understanding of just what is possible, even never mind adding into it a major government entity and what that entity can and cannot do. Uh, Comey here said in this speech, which our friend Kevin was apparently at, what are the chances? Uh, he said that I'm going to just give you some of the statistics that he he said that the FBI legally recovered 2,800 electronic devices during the course of its investigation into terrorism and other crimes and was unable to open 43% of the devices. This is in 2016. So, uh, 
that is that is where people now are, are turning a lot of their attention. This ties in, of course, to the alleged uh, CIA leak of uh, hacking tools. That's the way it's being described in the media that WikiLeaks put out there. But let's just start with general principles without addressing any specifics of that leak of purported uh, tools that the intelligence community would have access to. Uh, and, you know, understand that whenever you're on the phone, that can be, you know, and this is longstanding. This is why we have wiretapping uh, laws. This is why a lot of the rules that law enforcement has to go through exist. Uh, of course, that can be, it can be listened to. We all know that. And I'm not somebody who goes too deep into the specifics of the tech, but I can just tell you that anything that you're doing online, at least theoretically, can be intercepted, retrieved. And and you've got to think, well, if it's theoretical, someone's going to try to make it possible. And whether it's a foreign government or the U.S. government or some other entity, they're going to try to find ways to get access to that information. Information, especially in the 21st century context, is with so much of it out there and such a fast transfer of it all the time. Uh, information is power. And as we see this now, look, look at what the discussions are around our own election. It is, it is the belief of many Democrats that a very straightforward, uh, it's really social engineering is what they call it, which just means that fooling somebody. Uh, so what's a very straightforward form of a fraud, really, or a straightforward scheme to get someone's password so you can hack into their computer, that was all that was done. And we're told by a lot of Democrats that that's, that changed the course of the election. Now, they just want to believe that. They also said that, keep in mind, they said that Comey not, uh, Comey bringing up the investigation against Hillary, that changed the investigation. Fake news changed the investigation. Russia with attacking changed the investigation. I would offer the one thing that definitely, I'm sorry, I keep saying investigation. I meant the election. I think I'm saying investigation. Sorry. Ru- change the election. Change the election. I keep saying investigation. Uh, one thing that definitely changed the election, in my view, was the decision not to charge Hillary Clinton for obvious violation of federal criminal statute with her email server. That definitely, because I'm pretty sure that she would have lost the election if she were under a criminal indictment. So for all the whining we hear from Democrats about how Comey did this and the you know the fake news did that and the Russians did this, the, the one super solid favor that was done for a candidate in this whole election process is the very dubious decision to exercise prosecutorial discretion in in such a favorable fashion to Hillary Clinton that definitely did throw that definitely would have thrown the election one way or the other and they chose not to do it and it really was their obligation to do it in my opinion to bring those charges she was aware of what was going she just didn't care she thinks she's a Clinton and she was above that and anybody who's held a security clearance that's listening right now knows exactly what I'm talking about However much they love Hillary, they would realize that if you had over 100 classified documents on your computer, you were in a lot of trouble. Not a little trouble, a lot of trouble. But I know now we're supposed to think that that's ancient history. And in fact, we're supposed to forget that side of this whole equation and immediately move to Wukomi making the comments about the the opening of the or the reopening. It was never closed, but the continuation of the investigation to Hillary's server before the election that cost that cost her the election. I don't know. Maybe Hillary Clinton cost Hillary Clinton the election. Are we ever going to get to that point in this country? I know you are there, or most of you probably are. Uh, I'm there, but a lot of people won't. doesn't matter. It will never be 
that she was just not an inspiring, not a likable candidate, not a talented politician, not a talented politician, has a tremendous amount of name recognition and institutional support because of her husband. But I know you don't want me to relitigate the whole Hillary thing. I'm just, I, I like to put some of that context out there. Uh, but Comey's statement here, of course, is in the uh, is in the immediate aftermath of a few things. One, the discussion over whether there was the possibility of a FISA warrant, a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant, which now everyone's saying didn't exist. That's a totally fake, false, not accurate. Okay, fine. Maybe that's that's all true. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't have classified access anymore. I, I don't know if this thing was around or not. But you've got uh, Clapper coming out and saying, the former DNI, that he, he would know and it doesn't exist. Now, there's I'm going to tell you some things that other people probably won't about the subject, and that is that Clapper gets a tough rap for the questions asked to him by Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon when he, when he, when he was asked about whether there was any mass surveillance. He's being asked in an open forum to discuss classified issues, but also it's, which is never a good thing. And the senator would know that, by the way. Now, I'm not taking a position one way or the other on domestic surveillance. I'm just saying this is always cited as, well, Clapper's a liar and committed perjury. You know, technically, yeah, but once you put somebody in the hot seat and they have an issue of classified to protect, you know, if you if you put if you put a, a fellow agency officer who was, you know, under a protected status up on the stand somewhere, and you ask somebody else who is who is CIA, well, will you identify this person? Do you know this person's name? Or something? They'd probably say no, even though, you know, now that's, I know, kind of a silly example, but you know what I'm saying. You wouldn't, you wouldn't blow classified information uh, because you're trained so much not to do that. And if you're put in that situation, what you have to say is, well, I can't speak to that, or, you know, I need to go into closed chambers or something, judges' chambers, I need to... But in that context with Clapper... If they, uh, if he said, well, I can't answer, it would have been an answer. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a, there's a little bit more nuance in that. Um, there's a little more nuance in that than I think people give credit for. Uh, you know, there are some circumstances where you could be, you could be asked to address a classified issue in an open setting and you wouldn't do it. Anyway, there's a lot more. We're going to have to talk about this this week, by the way. I'm just, I'm just beginning to, uh, sc- not to scratch this. We're just beginning to dive into this one together. Um, so the reality here is that the FBI director's warning, I think, is well taken that we all need to start getting used to the idea in different ways, that whether it's government or just some other person or entity out there, everything that we're doing online, all these devices we, we are carrying around, your smartphone that is in your pocket right now, or maybe it's not in your pocket right now, but your, your smartphone that you carry around with you all the time is... A listening device is a means of prying into your life that you are freely giving information to all the time. It is the kind of access that the Stasi in East Germany couldn't have even dreamed about. Now, if you're not under active surveillance by a foreign power or if you're not, if there's not an outstanding warrant as a U.S. citizen, this shouldn't be a concern for you, really, most of the time. But, of course, there are the circumstances where there's just criminals who will gain access to this. And as the criminals realize increasingly, if they can do this from overseas and there'll be no consequences, you are putting yourself at risk. There are very real um, there are very real concerns to be addressed here about you know, what it is that you're sharing your information. I mean, Comey's saying just because you have a conversation even with your spouse, don't think that we can't get to that. Anything that you put in an email— 
anything that is out there in the electronic record, and I think increasingly we realize even things that are transient in the record, so even like a live conversation, there are ways to get at that information. There are ways to, even for, for bad guys, and of course the concern becomes even more real when you look at your own government and its tools. But like I said, just a, a, a rule of thumb or a principle to keep in mind is that you're carrying around with you, all, and every time you're using your laptop, it is, the, it is a surveillance de- device that you are carrying, a surveillance device on yourself that creates an incredibly long and detailed record of all of your thoughts and activities and communications that in many cases, it's just a question of how hard somebody wants to get into it, but they will find a way if they really want to. So that's that's just the new reality we live with now. And I'm not saying that makes that, it's not, that the government should do this or that it can do this or anything else, but just understand that there are electronic, there are vulnerabilities that exist in our electronic world, and there is no perfect solution. There's no, oh, well, everything I do here will be fine. The electrons are flying. There's, there's a vulnerability. All right, I got to hit a break. Uh, hold the line. Be right back. So I'm going to have to set the table for today, and we're going to have to feast tomorrow, my friends, because I didn't get enough uh, time with you to, to go in-depth on the whole WikiLeaks allegations of, uh, uh, well, the leaks from WikiLeaks and the allegations that it's some CIA uh, hacking tools dump, uh, which the administration is not commenting on in terms of authenticating one way or the other. But here's what Spicy, because we say that with affection, here's what Spicy had to say about this. Play uh, 28 first. But I think the idea that we are having these ongoing disclosures of national security and classified information should be something that everybody is outraged in this country. This is the kind of disclosure that undermines our country, our, our security, and our well-being. And you've seen over the last two years, you know, depending on the leak, it depends on the outrage. It's interesting how, whenever the whether the leak occurred under the last administration, you had uh, member after member um, talking about disclosures that occurred. Um, it's interesting how there is sort of a double standard with when the leaks occur, how much outrage there is. Very true, by the way. You'll notice that the the disclosures. First of all, the disclosures from the left about. Um, or the disclosures from Chelsea Manning, for example, were held up to be leaks that were somehow, by the left at least, somehow embraced and justified. Um, and they weren't leaks of any, they weren't leaks of anything that needed to be leaked. I mean, it was just undermining U.S. national security. But the left, the left embraces it because if if it beats down America, if it's bad for American national security and makes us look bad at it, then it has to be. There has to be some moral grounds for this on the left, although anytime you're talking about the left and morality, you're going to all of a sudden get confused real fast. Um, but the leaks that came out, for example, of General Fl- on General Flynn and his conversation with the Russian ambassador, that's the left likes that one. Um, I, I've look, I've been consistent. I have not been somebody who trusts WikiLeaks at all and and don't think that WikiLeaks should be held up as a transparency organization. It can sometimes be a transparency. This is sort of like the ACLU can sometimes work for individual liberty, but overall it's a leftist progressive outfit that pushes a political agenda under the guise of individual uh, individual liberty and civil rights. So, I mean, WikiLeaks, let's not fool ourselves. WikiLeaks is not 
uh, an organization that is devoted to anything other than undermining U.S. national security interests. Doesn't mean that it doesn't sometimes tell us interesting things, and maybe if you don't like Hillary, you think what it did was great over the summer. But come on. Um, this latest leak, what could possibly be the justification for this, if in fact it's real? Uh, we're going to have to hit this more tomorrow, everybody. So join me, 6 to 9 Eastern. Uh, go on iTunes, download the podcast. And until tomorrow night, I have to say to you all, shields high.